When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander, featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Kaya Alexander. I'm really, really delighted to be here today with my special guest, Kawika Hoke, who is dialing in from the island of Maui to be with us. Kawika, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you today? Hey, so good. So good. I would love for you to give our listeners some of your background. You and I just met on the island of Maui. I was there on vacation and I couldn't believe, oh my God, there's a showrunner on Maui. What? And I love chatting with you and your producer, Brad, and hearing about your vision. Um, give us some of your, your background. You have such an interesting background. There's no one else like you. Well, um, Started uh, in theater, uh, lucky enough to attend a high school with an IA vocational program. Was trained as a lighting technician and then a youth technical director. Used that to mount my way into Disney theme parks. Spent six years there, jumped to Lego, then took a small break and pivoted towards the nonprofit industry for almost a decade serving veterans in uh, houselessness and then use that to pivot back as a, a business admin in the industry. Cause I noticed that there was, you know, I, I wanted to be talent, but then I realized that there was a much bigger hole above the line. And that was, that was the place for me. And so that's, I I've spent the last few years working on uh, small time B-list blockbusters, lifetime and Hallmark movies. And uh, lucky enough to be working on a few uh, Maui produced pictures that that's what really drew me back and then got me back to Maui in order to produce my own show now, which I've, kind of put the cart before the horse and greenlit myself because it didn't seem like anybody was coming anytime soon. <laughs> I, I love it. I, um, are we allowed to talk about the show? Can we talk about the show? Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. So he's got a comedy called Moku Moku. I'm so excited about it because I got to see it half hour and hysterical. So funny and native Hawaiian. Tell us about your vision for the show and, um, where you've been coming from with this and the creation of it. So, uh, Moku Moku started as a conversation between uh, another executive producer and I. We were we were kind of stuck in the humdrum of like, why is it always a lifetime movie, and why are we always playing tertiary characters in our own place? Uh, as some that care to know, or at least care to notice a little bit, if you if you watch, you know, NCIS Hawaii or Magnum PI or your average lifetime movie that's based in Hawaii or Maui that it's usually around people that are using paradise, but not the people that make it up. And so you tend to have this ingenue that comes from the mainland and like gets some lesson taught to her by some tokenized character, but ultimately falls in love and hangs out with other characters from the, you know, colonial continent. Um, so it, it really became a thing to us to discuss like, well, what, if we could green light ourselves, what would it be? And so I turned to that producer and I was just like, you know, I don't have a lot, but like, if, if you were actually going to take a chance on us, what would you want to see? You know, what, what would be the intersectional point for someone from the continental U S to be able to understand, you know, Kanaka and Hawaiians in the islands and in a way that everybody would enjoy being seen. And so he, he essentially just, he's, he's an equation dropping kind of guy. So he's just like, 
give me Hawaiians plus letter Kenny. And that equals your show. And just whatever you do, like just make it in that direction. And I I've really become, you know, prompt oriented in the last few years and being a writer, you know, you, you can write what you want, but will it get greenlit, you know? So it's learning how to take what people say to you and turn it into what you want and what they want. And so I found this was my opportunity. I didn't necessarily want it to make a letter Kenny, um, but I was like, that's, that's a cool starting point. And then how do we change the rules and make it our own show? And after he read the script, he was like, you know what? Like, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but this is what I needed. So go ahead. Like, let's, let's do this. And, you know, and, and for those that do manage to get to see the pilot and, and have something to say about it, it, it isn't letter Kenny and it isn't reservation dogs, but it's this weird amalgam of just, you know, where we sit in the pop culture, seeing it as these tertiary characters and, um, and, and, and how we, how we get around it. So like the, the show itself, uh, centers around three, three close friends living in upcountry Maui and Makawao. And, and it follows their day by day more in the sense of just like all the stranger than life factors. Cause people don't realize how strange it really is to live in Hawaii. Like you think it's like sunshine and pineapples and beaches, but we are talking about late stage capitalism harder than the rest of y'all because we are the richest economy in the United States. The County of Maui alone is a billion dollars a year in revenue. Yet we have the, the, like the, the smallest workforce. We don't have enough jobs for people to go around. We have some of the highest, homeless to house ratios it, it just it's sometimes it feels like we're we're in like a cyberpunk idiocracy dystopia and and people don't really get it until they live here for more than six months because you could really disguise it for a while and so that's where the show just kind of just drops you right in the middle of the day-to-day grind so you get to meet a guy who doesn't really know who he is much like any other American that's just been over gentrified by 130 years of colonial, just, you know, consumerist capitalist drivel. So, you know, we find a kid who doesn't know what it means to be Hawaiian, even though he lives in Hawaii. And that's actually a very important conversation with us, you know? And then we also have his best friend who's just, you know, your generic loving guy, but then everybody's always wondering is, is he straight? Is he gay? Or is he just independently who he wants to be? And there's a lot of culture like that out here where people don't realize that, you know, we don't think in the he, her sense of just like our everyday life. We have that they, them sense in us. That's just not, it, we don't have to put that, that button or that qualifier on all those things. And then we have Leilani who obviously looks like she's a part of the group, but then people don't realize that she herself is actually an outsider that's trying to figure out how to blend into a society that she looks like and knows nothing about. But surprisingly enough, because she puts her best foot forward, she's actually one of the better examples of what it is to be, uh, you know, Kama'aina or a member of the Lahui of the Hawaiian community. So interesting. And Kanaka, it's the word for the native Hawaiian people, yeah? Yes, Kanaka, Kanaka Maoli, Kanaka Ivi. So depending on what where you come from in that, there, there's a lot of confusion and what is Hawaiian? Because most people, they hear the word Hawaiian and they think it might be some guy that looks like me. But what most people don't realize is that the Hawaiian kingdom, before it was taken over by uh, the United States, it was actually a well-blended colony of peoples. So we, you know, we had already abolished slavery long before America did, more closer to the time when Canada did. Uh, we had it in our, our, our constitution. So if you if you brought a slave to Hawaii, they became free the second they landed here. And so we actually have a huge free man community of, of Afro-Americans that knew that if they found their way here, this was the escape route. And so they're, they're embedded deep in our, in our culture and our community. And we as Hawaiians, we recognize that difference between, you know, people fused into the kingdom, into the community. That's why, like, we have the term local or kama'aina, the steward of the land, you know. And so those who are willing to become Hawaiian kingdom citizens or stewards of the land, they're considered Hawaiian. But those that are of the original blood lineage that founded this country, those are Kanaka. And those, those are the ones that, that we're, we're trying to talk about the most because most people don't realize how few of us there are left 
and how many of us are displaced. We are, I mean, interestingly, we, we are refugees within our own country because we were, most of our grandparents were Hawaiian citizens who then overnight had to join militaries in order to gain citizenship, who then had their houses taxed overnight and their, their silver stocks depleted because it wasn't equivalent to the American dollar. And then a whole system caused us to become just refugees abroad. And that's why now we have more Hawaiians living anywhere but Hawaii. Um, the, the most recent statistic to come out is that there's less than 300,000 Kanaka in Hawaii and three and a half million of us live everywhere else. So you actually have a better chance of meeting a Kanaka in Las Vegas than you do on Maui. Well, I didn't know that until you and I started talking. It's astonishing. And, you know, the realization of even my own ignorance about how little I know about the Hawaiian people. And it was revelatory to watch your show and realize, oh, my God, we don't have Native Hawaiian representation on screen. Uh, and I, very inspiring your vision uh, with everything that you're creating and doing out of the island of Maui. Tell us more about your vision. Well, I mean, we're, we're not just one show. You know, I mean, it was crazy for us to greenlight ourselves, but really what we're greenlighting is an economy, not an industry, an economy that's made for the local community. So we've had to set a baseline for what people are paid. We've had to establish our own payroll systems. Like, I mean, you guys get ABS or rap book everywhere else or bond it, but like we need them out here. And so then that costs us an arm and a leg to bring accountants out here mm -hmm. or we have to telecom those services. And then the downside to telecoming those services is money's leaving the state because we're paying someone in New Mexico or paying someone in California. And then if we have like Maui, Maui gets a 27% tax credit. So every dime that we spend somewhere else, we don't get that tax credit on. So we had to take the chance and go, well, we're going to inflate our budget 25.15% because we're going to own the payroll company. And then establish that we're going to hire people on W-2s because even though, you know, SAG and IATSE and, you know, and the Teamsters have a great union presence in Oahu, they don't have offices on Maui or Kauai or Big Island. So in that sense, we have to give a fair play environment to our talent by offering something akin to negotiating, you know, so we give them a real company that's, that's going to bond and back a paycheck. I mean, that's been a crazy thing for these people to understand is that they don't realize how, how much left in the wind they've been by signing a 1099. And then that's not, you're lucky. If, if you do get paid, then you're lucky. And if you don't get paid arbitrating that there's nothing there in those weird boilerplate, like 30 year old agreements that everybody keeps using for ultra low budget films. So it's a huge step for us to be able to make it a point to bond and back a paycheck and help them recognize that like I'm I'm putting myself on the line by like insuring a company and federally promising that a paycheck will come out and a wire transfer will occur and it's a, it's even teaching them a lesson of like wow I didn't realize what I was missing by not having that and then on top of that it's how do we cre create continual work you know so we took the pandemic as time to really look over the market what physical people want what the corporeal market wants and what the algorithm market wants because you have to be aware of it you know you you have to be aware of how to feed the machine itself and how to feed the people and at some point there's intersectionality and some point you have to feed one or the other depending on the market that you want to play in um and then with that being said we we intend on having just as much of an analog release platform as we do a digital one so today i was lucky enough to talk with uh KITV, which is our ABC affiliate out here. And uh, we're starting a, a conversation to establish a first looks contract with them because they want to dig into our slate and go, oh, this is great for our Filipino network. Oh, this is great for our Japanese network. So then we end up, you know, exposed to bases that we wanted, but we didn't have the data for. And then, you know, and then we expand out to setting up our own aggregating account with Amazon for TVOD and with Tubi and all of those other, uh, you know, free to aggregate yourself platforms that most independent producers have been using a sales agent or a distro jockey or an aggregator. And to me, I, I find those, I mean, 
I, I really don't care if there's any of those types of people listening right now, but you have to understand that they're like the real estate agents of the system. They're, they're passing along other people's property and data, and then they get a little bit of a something, something for passing it along, you know, and that, that can take a lot more out of you than the $20,000 setup fee to have them aggregate you because we're noticing more and more as they're walking away with the data. You know, I, I've, I've done post-production on quite a few Hawaiian independent films. And every time I turn around and I go, guys, if we aggregated ourselves and we take the chance on selling ourselves, we may lose a little now, but we will accumulate data that will keep us in business in the long term. And, you know, eight times out of the 10, we went with the aggregator because they're like, oh, it's so much easier, Kavix, you don't understand. And then we walk away later and they never paid us. Because they don't, they don't let you know the imaginary number that you reached in order for them to release funds to you, you know, and then, and then it becomes a weird conversation of, well, oh, well, can I at least see the clicks? And they go, oh, well, that's proprietary. And you didn't read the end user license agreement or the contract you signed with us. So actually, no, you don't need to see the click data because you didn't buy that part. You just bought me putting it on Amazon. Right. So that's a big reason there. And then, um, and then where it goes from there is a lot of establishing what are the things that, that Maui needs in order to have long-term employment opportunities, not just the writing of the shows themselves, but where's our prop houses and our art departments and how do we establish training for the above the line? Because there are so many kids out here that know how to hold a camera, that know how to write, that can direct, but there's not enough people who can be the paralegal that gets pre-production started or enough people who know how to line produce or even just talk to a vendor and start a relationship or manage locations. Mm -hmm. So we're recognizing that in this process, we have to create workforce development programs that take kids who are like, okay, we've got a thousand kids over here that want to be actors. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I've only got 20 positions. So the other 980 of you, We'll talk later about you being on screen, but in the meantime, who wants to get paid twice as much to learn how to be a line producer today? And then when they realize, oh, I could be a UPM in five years, and that makes more than three actors combined, I'll do that, you know? So you really just have to, I mean, we have to expose people to the other parts of the market and make them realize that there's more to do than just act or write or, or pick up camera or, or even stitch clothing because there's so many hats to wear. And that's, that's really what the, the bigger part of what we're developing and, and why it's an economy versus an industry, because we're trying to create enough positions for the people out here to, to support their own lives, but then also be in a career field that appeals to them and they want to be a part of, and then provide enough content that they can keep doing that with. So interesting. I mean, it places you like a, in between being a production, um, doing production as a production company, and then also pushing you toward the studio side where you're really like a mini studio that you're creating with all of the uh, elements that are together because you're an island, right? So you need all the, you need everybody there. <laughs> I think it's really I, and I love it. Yeah, it really has to be like a studio mindset. You know, we like, I mean, it's, some days, like, I, I kind of get delusions of grandeur and I try to remember everything that, like, I learned working with studios like Disney or working with, like, smaller time places like Lifetime or Hallmark, but then recognizing that we have a space to change the rules and, and you know, I make new judgments and decisions as we, as we build this market. Um, but we really, like, if you're thinking conservation-minded to what the island needs, you're recognizing that everything has to be here. We can't continue to import. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of stuff that gets shot out here, but it doesn't involve the locals. It doesn't involve Kanakas or Kama'aina. It doesn't involve the Hawaiian kingdom. Uh, your, your average CBS or NBC show imports all of its major stars from the continent because it gives us, they, they constantly tell, oh, well, you don't have any vetted you know, talent. You don't have any, there's no, no fire or clout behind these people. So we gotta, you know what, you gotta be tree number three or drug dealer number seven. Um, maybe let's talk again in five years and then five years passes and it's the same old, you know, and I, I maybe I'm sorry, Wesley, maybe I'll kill you tomorrow, you know? <laughs> but and, and so we're just left in this, assuming we are going to get there someday position. 
And then we all finally turn around and realize like, oh, they're not hiring us. They're bringing people to hire other people in and they're replacing our market. And they're not coming in to like take our houses and take our, our, our other jobs. They're literally coming on vacation. A Hallmark movie brings about 35 people on vacation and then it employs like 15 people just because it gets the tax credit. Whereas we want to reverse that number and go, okay, well, we're missing a couple of these above the line, dude. So we'll borrow this 15% from the continent and do 85% of it from Hawaii because we have the talent here to do it. I love that. It oh. is tourist filmmaking. It very much is, Ryan. It, it, it is a, a form of exploitation filmmaking, no different than what's going on in Thailand, no different than what they did in Cambodia in the 70s, and no different than what's going on in Morocco right now. Like, I mean, you think that Hawaii may have it bad. I feel bad for like Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Morocco. Those are places that they don't even have unions even around the corner. And so people just drop in overnight and they just spread the whole idea y'all are going to be stars and then you know then they leave the next day and it's like did we end up on tv i don't know and then a lot of things just die in the can because they get some pre-sale deal and then that's the even weirder part is the majority of what's shot out here goes to die on basic cable or ends up in a pre-sale tranche that ends up touring china and never the american mainland because they made 13 to 25 percent overhead on costs and that's the whole market for it. I mean, it's just a new age of asylum style films. They're just, everybody's doing it now. Wow. And I wasn't even aware of that. You know, we get into our little Hollywood bubble or, you know, even US bubble. And um, how has streaming affected how you're thinking about your vision and what's happening right now with the streaming landscape, Kawika? I know you spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I have. And my biggest, like, I, I got, I, I look at it from the same sense as uh, Tom Petty in the seventies fighting the record industries when he realized that it was better for him to distribute himself and fight to get his music back. And lucky for me, I grew up watching a Tom Petty, so I didn't have to make his mistake. So my damn the torpedo scenario is I will make the foolish decision of owning it myself but uh, 20 years from now, me, who understands how the time game works, I, I'm really, every time I talk to a, another person who's been in my shoes 10 years ago and then took the opportunity to go with the streamer, they're not happy with it. I mean, I have some friends that I grew up with in, in my Burbank days of running around out there to get work that like they got a Hulu first look deal and then they disappeared after one really good movie and then, or they got golden handcuffs. I mean, we're, we're not even two miles away from where Dustin Daniel Cretton goes to church and was born and raised. And that's the man who made Shang-Chi happen. He's going to bring the multiverse together in the Kang dynasty. And that guy's living in golden handcuffs for Disney and can't go off and make his own stuff. Uh, Dustin, if you're uh, listening, I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> that's what, I mean, but that's, that's where it's at. So that's, that's what tells me, especially with all the analysis on the streaming market, it's, it really, it has really bothered me that like for as much as good as something like Netflix can do in creating exposure, people don't realize how much it's been draining our economy because of that Silicon Valley injection into Hollywood. And so we've been selling the streaming industry, not as entertainment that had to be backed by a dollar. We've been selling it on the fiat currency that one day that little NFT will be worth millions. And so we're just going to keep riding in the red. I mean, Netflix, how many years have they been riding in the red? And they're barely even out of it now. And they're about to sink deeper, even though they just went into an age of with ads. So we've now uncut the cable and re-injected it into streaming. And it's still not making enough money. And so to me, that says, keep my data that I've been accumulating, because I mean, that's something that we haven't really talked about yet is I've been accumulating data for a decade now, because nobody wanted to know or care where Hawaiians and AAPI intersected in their film audience, even though the MPAA has been dropping hints about it for years in their diversity reports, even though SAG has been trying to make sure that those boxes are checked, because they know that there's 
30 million Asian Pacific Islanders and growing in the United States and hundreds of millions of Mexican Americans and Afro Americans that could be given BIPOC content that they would all enjoy together. And I mean, it really, after things like when like Finding Ohana came out and then the MPAA gives the whole, oh, well, there's only 2% content in the world that's that's actually diverse and 98% of it's like Anglo white. So like everybody make more. And then Netflix is like, yeah, we'll make more right after we cancel all of our AAPI content. And then it went and it was just like, well, why did you guys do that? Well, like, oh, well, we, we only have enough budget for like one ethnicity at a time guys. So we're just gonna, we're gonna move over here for a little bit and we'll come back to you in 10 years if it matters. Oh my God. And so to me, that tells me aggregate myself. Yeah, I, you know, and then when you think about that, like, think about your gen general customer, you as a filmmaker, you as a producer, if you're selling this out here, I mean, do people really know the difference between Amazon TVOD and Amazon SVOD? Do they really know the difference between it's on Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus? Because how many uncles do we have go, oh, are you on Netflix? And you're like, yeah, uncle, I'm on Hulu. Cool, I'll watch you on Netflix. And then they just, they're like, I looked on Netflix, but you weren't there. And it's like, because we're on Amazon, uncle. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'll check Netflix for you, you know? So it's, if you know how to make your funnel and you know how to control your data, people don't really care where they're going now. It's proven by the fact that we have a million subscription services and people will give into them or create alt accounts and drop accounts to get another free 30 days every 30 days if they want to. So however you're going to get to your audience, figure it out for yourself, but don't wait around for Superman and hope Netflix is going to cut you a deal because there's only so long that their money's going to be worth anything. Yes. I love this about you. You have such a strong intersection between your business side and your artist. You're living in that marriage, you know, of how do we take it from one side, bring it to the other without making the artist's mistake of saying, I'm going to do this auteur boutique thing that I don't know how to sell or doing the business thing, which is like, oh, we're just going to chop it into little blocks until we can sell it. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about your artist side, because I know that you're a deep artist. You've got a lot of vision and you have a lot of influences that you draw from. So tell us what you're most passionate about on the, on the artist side. Uh, well, I have to say I was the most passionate about acting and writing when I first started out. And then it really, as, as I got disenfranchised from acting, I realized how much more fun I was having as a writer. Um, I, I started doing anthologies while there was still space in a sci-fi periodicals. My first love is cyberpunk. I'm always, always about relating the dystopia of now through the future of tomorrow. I think that that like, it's one of the most interesting spaces that like we can progressively live as artists is in things like super futurism, because I found it's one of the few places where everybody will come together, even the red state people. Like if you put in front of them, like, oh, well, it's all going to be like semi-Chinese mixed and uh, gender fluid. And, you know, then the progressive side's like, yay, the future looks interesting. And then the other side is like, Aunt Will figures the libs took it over and it's like but they all still watch it and that's the best part is that they're still going to sit down and watch it because everybody you know no matter how much crap they're going to give uh Johnny Mnemonic for that talking porpoise they're still all going to tune in to watch Keanu Reeves put a hard drive in his head and run around through town that's so nice. that's that's why I mean I'm always a sci-fi guy first uh, I fell in love with time travel that's probably like my biggest like thing I love to like get lost in. Um, I, I was that kid that watched at, like back to the future. I watched it every which way from sideways. Cause then I was like, at what point is like, can you think about the continuity of two based on one, et cetera. And then that evolved into appreciating newer things like, you know, Chris O'Dowd frequently asked questions about time travel, a movie that actually thinks about its continuity down to the fact that, you can watch from the set. If you've watched it once, you know, the second time watching around that all the time travels visibly in front of you, you just had to time travel once to see it, you know? And so I, I really like how, how in depth sci-fi has led people to care about their characters, to develop their universes. And, and, and then a lot of that also comes from high fantasy. I mean, I, I grew up reading a lot of tour novelists back when you still could be a nobody and submit to tour and you find all these amazing, like just book convention authors telling stories about things that like 
the rest of the industry was saying, oh, no, uh, if it hasn't been written yet, it, it, it can't be because all the stories have been written. And meanwhile, you've got Catherine Asaro figuring out how to like make sense of time traveling in a fantasy realm. And then now now because of the Catherine Asaros of the world, we have things like Outlander, you yeah. know, so. I, I really, I really dig into to time travel on both sides, and I really love talking about history, both real and fictional. Like, if I'm trying to trying to get lost in writing for something like Moku Moku, I, I like to distract myself with things that are off genre or off topic. So, like, when I'm talking about late stage capitalism and musubis in my writing, I'm secretly watching Mrs. Maisel and Call the Midwife. You know? <laughs> Because I, I like to be in a different place in my head than what I'm writing, so it doesn't it doesn't intersect it, you know it doesn't intersect with it, and you accidentally start writing what other people are writing. So I also go through like cleansing phases where I just I won't watch content for a while, and then if I do, then pick it up. I'm picking up content that is nowhere near like mine, and then I think that that's why it causes me to genre bend a lot, uh, you know. And I think that that's what's causing a, a lot of newer writers to genre bend a lot is we we grow up with all these things that we like and then eventually it becomes like how do we put them all together and and i'm also inspired a lot by um animation and children's television i feel like children's tv is one of the last places that actually makes good programming it's one of the few things i actually do watch on netflix like stranger things is nice and all but like dogs in space has a better introspective storyline right now and it's it's crazy to think that i'd watch us a show called Centaur World, but the animation's amazing. The the songs are great, and and the discussion is things that we need to be talking about as people. So whether you're doing it with three guys sitting on the street corner in front of you know a, a shop in Haiku, or you're talking about it as four legged creatures dancing on a rainbow, I think as long as you're getting the point across that you need, that you're, you're succeeding. <laughs> I love that. Hey, tell us more about your childhood and um, falling in love with TV, film, and this dream of showrunning that you are living now. So um, I grew up on a lot of TV. Uh, you know, having, having a mom who had to work all the time and then getting thrown off to my grandparents uh, for most of my life. Um, there was, I mean, I was the late 80s kid that just lived on his stomach in front of a wooden television you know like i have my grandparents curtis mathis and there was like just like there's an exact like the tv guide was my schedule for my life you know <laughs> because you growing up in the ghetto like you wake up at 5 a.m you go get the newspaper for your grandfather you sit down for breakfast you walk two miles to the bus stop you go to the other side of town you go to school and then you're like, eh, I hate school. And then the second you come home, it's like, okay, if I get my homework done by three, I can catch at least 30 minutes of stuff before my grandfather comes home and we all have to watch the news. And then we got to watch MASH. And then Tutu's going to be like, oh, but we got to watch Oprah today. Somebody good's on. And then the next thing you know, it like, and so it, it wasn't always just narrative and fictional television I got to watch, you know? I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about growing up in the 80s and 90s is that we didn't have multiple TVs in our house. We didn't have our own computer in our pocket. And I think that that's what made us as a culture wholly different than we are now because we get to live in this world where we privately get to want everything we want. Whereas I grew up in a world where you had to lay in front of the TV while your grandfather was sitting there on the ottoman and your grandmother was knitting and you all had to fight and go, all right, are we watching uh, Knight Rider tonight or yep. are we watching Highway to Heaven? And then that's, that's the funny part when it hit me as a writer because I was starting to write as a kid and I was starting to recognize like what shows were the same. And then that's when it made me realize like, okay, well then who are the guys that are making these shows? Then I realized it was like the same four or five guys. You had, you had your Bellisarios and your Burnett's and your Seagulls, you know? And so it's like, um, once you, once I realized that there was no difference between Quantum Leap, Highway to Heaven, and even The Incredible Hulk, because it's literally fish out of water, lands in a city and solves the world's problems, then everything makes sense now. You kind of see the matrix at that point. So by the time that I was 12, 
I, I was already in that space of like, well, how do I spec this? You know, and then I'd hear these occasional things or I'd, I'd steal my mom's TV guide or her soap opera digest. And I'd read the industry section because I realized that like soap opera digest would have a section and they're talking about like, oh, what, what are we looking for this year? And what, and then I'd go to, you know, Comic-Con because my, my mom was dragging me there since I was five years old. And so eventually at a point by the time I was 13, I'm like, oh, what's in this room over here? Oh, showrunners talking about, oh, how is Heroes made? All right, cool. Tim Crane, here we go. You know, and then you start listening to these guys and you get five minutes with them and you go, hey, Mr. Sir, like, what do I got to do? And that's when I, I really got my best advice on it is just like, be prepared to spec anything, recognize what the algorithm wants and when, when the pace comes up for it. So like, you know, right now it's like, okay, I'm glad that Quantum Leap's back because the child inside me is alive, but I know the second he gets canceled, well then where's the next A team or touched by an angel that I need to be specking. And so I'll just learn to write a quantum leap spec and then go, Hey, I could be writing your new touched by an angel, you know? So there's a lot of, a lot of the foresight came a lot earlier than I thought it would as like when I, when I saw that I wanted what I wanted and recognizing that I had to start hat stacking and so when, when that point hit and I was lucky enough to be in the theater program, I was in, I was like, well, obviously the best paying jobs below the line are going to be rigging and, and lighting. And, you know, so I was just like, then my aim is to either be set deck or best boy electric in the next 10 years, you know? And then I was, I was lucky enough to be a, a stage performer and a puppeteer for a while, but it was really what saved me in the end that got me back through and into the system was being able to, to dip my hat into regions that other people couldn't touch. Cause your average showrunner is, is a guy that's, that's so much lost in his head, writer oriented normally that you don't see him in, in the foxhole with everybody else, you know? And so that's what's, what really appealed to me was that I could be a working class showrunner and, um, and then be the kind of showrunner that's like, okay, I'm going to hide for two years in development and I'm going to write this show and I'm going to make all my other, other departments understand what I need. And then when it comes to the day, I'm going to go, oh, you know what? We can't have a gaffer these days because this market, you've got six gaffers on island. So Junior's got a day off. So who's our gaffer? Oh, all the gaffers are working. I guess I am because I can do that. Or, oh, I guess I can Best Boy Electric or I, I can build this set today. And I think that that's a, a thing that I've learned that I think young showrunners have to learn is like, you don't have to wear the same dozen hats as the Tyler Perry's, the James Gunn's, you know, you could be the showrunner that picks up a paintbrush just as much as they pick up the pen, or, you know, you could line produce or be post-marketing. Like what if you are the social media ingenue in your group, what's the point in bringing someone on to be your clout manager when then now secures that you have control of your post process. And then that's why for me, the biggest thing that I got oriented into was post by not only being a showrunner that can make it happen on the day, but being the one that can always say that there's going to be money again on the back end because I control that conversation too that makes it to where I can more or less be a studio exec showrunner and kind of go back to those you know, like younger Iger days or like old school Walt Disney days, you know, where you got a person that really just R and D's and touches every little piece and then comes back around and learning how to do that tour was probably the hardest part out of all of it is knowing when like you, you have to keep moving to your next apartment and then you have, and then you have to come back to another apartment or recognizing what departments can be autonomous. You know, can, can you leave your DP alone for the whole shoot? I wouldn't suggest it, but if you got one like I've got, then you'd be like, I can leave for a day. Austin will be fine. You know? And then, you know, if you're, if you are showing a show, you might want to direct. It's like, well, what about all those other episodes? Have you vetted that one director who's going to cover the rest of it? Are you going to have a carousel of directors coming through? And then how do you make sure that they're prepared, especially in a market where a lot of guys just drop in on the day and go, okay, I read the notes. I think I know where we're going. And then because they haven't been vested in it or sitting around it for so long, they get lost in the weeds of just those lines. And then they don't know how to respect your creative vision. So there's times in noticing like, what hats need to be held the most, what hats you go and recruit, what hats you give up. 
but but ultimately as a kid when i was looking at it i i had to start recognizing what are the things i loved and what are the things that nobody else wanted to do and that's where i started making that list and, and I was really proving that by working at Disney because when I noticed that janitors made more money in their second year than puppeteers made by their third year, I was like, well, what is the janitor doing right that the puppeteer is doing wrong? And it sounds weird at first, but then when you recognize that how much work that janitor does and where it fits in, it might just inspire you to be the executive producer that cleans up his own trash because he recognizes how much a facilities team costs. That's so interesting. Your servant leadership around that is really inspiring. I know some of your vision comes from um, wanting to do things differently, not like how you were treated, but how you want to treat others. Would you say more about that? Because I love hearing you talk about the way that you treat your crew and your talent. Well, you know, I have to say it's 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 been a hard journey into that because there's first establishing how much you want to pe people want to be paid. You know, us as artists, we get we tend to get lost in the vision of our ego. And we're so invested in our properties and projects that we think who wouldn't want to work this for as little as they do as I'm doing right now, you know? So it's like, even though I'm willing to take the cost of scripts off the table to turn it into sweat equity, it doesn't mean that the other department is going to take that pay cut. You know, I mean, you want people to see your vision, you need their loyalty to be with you. You need, you need integrity in front of them. And, making a paycheck cash is a huge part about that. So, I mean, that was the, the, the first thing was recognizing, okay, well, I didn't like how much I was being paid. So let's change that first. And then, well, what are the pitfalls and perils that come with that? Well, sometimes your payroll might be late if you're trying to pay people more. So how do you make sure that you're, you're working on morale and that conversation to make everybody know that like things are, things are coming, you know, back to that whole point of like, having a payroll system with bonded paychecks. So they go, oh, well, we're late today because our executive producers are just learning, you know, how to procure funds. But at the same time, we've created this insurance measure that goes, you're gonna get paid. And I think that that's another thing that like people need to think about is putting yourself in a position where you are obliged to complete your end goals that even you don't wanna think about sometimes. So you can put a little ball and chain on yourself. And it's a big one in the case of a payroll company, but when you think about how much it can keep an artist on track and business minded, when you have that nagging at the back of your mind, oh, I have to fulfill a $90,000 promise this week, you know? And then when you do, the level of respect that gets you, you know, I, I noticed on a lot of lifetime sets that, especially out here, that there, there were people that just didn't understand how, how little they were going to make until after they got done with it or how, how, little they were going to be listened to or given opportunity. And then that was another thing that really inspired me in the, the building process is like, I'm on an island, you know? So I, I look at a lot of what we do based upon what other islands have done. I think it's a little too, too big of us to think we could be as competitive with Korea yet. But when I think about like, like the filmmaking scene in Ireland, you know, you, you can't, you can't just assume based on looks who the best talent's going to be. You can't uh, assume based on the way people talk, how smart they are. So a lot of like what I do when I'm sitting on set, you know, and I have a moment and first team's got it all taken care of, I'll go sit and holding with the extras and, and I'll make it a point to not even introduce myself as like their boss or the guy that signed their paycheck today. It's really just like, I'm in holding with you. I'm going to have a little with the people like just hiding in plate side moment and literally listen to people and go, what do you want to do? Because that's when you'll find out that you have an extra sitting there that could actually be your DIT. And they literally just took the gig because they were like, I heard this show was running for 80 days and you weren't hiring in the department that I wanted. So I figured if I did a walk on, you might talk to me or I could get the right information. And case in point yesterday on set, some kids showed up to be a record store extra and then ended it talking to my co-producer, Brad, and went, hey, I don't do extra work, but I figured this is how I'd talk to you guys. And now he's in my Rolodex and now he's going to get a chance. You know, a big thing that I noticed along the way is that a lot of people who had great talent didn't get talked to in those ways. My DP is the finest example of that. He was constantly hired as a key PA since he was 16. Not to mention the fact that that kid had a uh, public access Emmy since he was 16 and people still overlooked him as, as a visual artist. And they went, oh no, you're, 
you're going to just keep running documents and, and, and bringing extras on set. And it was after like the third movie, I sat down with them. I was like, yo, bro, like, what, what do you want to do? And he's like, oh, oh, I am director of photography and, uh, I would love to show you my reel. And I'm like, okay, bro, I'm going to check your reel. And I watched it like, why are you shooting all of these movies? And it's just like, and when you see like half of what goes straight to TV, you're like, why not give someone a chance? Because most of those guys, like, I just, I don't, I don't get why we're not giving people the chance on like stuff that's never going to see the light of day or is going to go to a low market audience. Like those should be your times where you test the new kid the most, you know? And so I've, I found a lot of folks like that, that really got put in the wrong spots or they got casted into a position or crewed up into a position that was just at least going to guarantee them work. I know people that have pivoted from being directors of photography to being PAs for the rest of their life because it's the only thing that's going to give them a consummate day rate to pay their bills. Because if they did want to take the chance on being a DP, they'd have to do it themselves or they'd have to file you know, follow someone's delusion of grandeur of making a $5,000 movie, you know? And then that's, that's another scary thing to deal with as much as I love the idea of making a low budget masterpiece. Like we have to understand that if we're going to employ more than just yourself, you're responsible to that person's life. You're responsible to them paying their, their rent for eating their lunch. Do they have kids? Those kids go to school. Those kids have clothes to wear, you know? So like, we really need to humanize our below the line and, and be servant leaders in that aspect. Lest we forget that there are people that are counting on us with their everyday jobs that turn into this amazing piece of art. You know, I was having a, a discussion with a friend last week she didn't understand like the difference between above the line and below the line. And she felt that everybody in Hollywood was just this one percenter, high muck muck attitude type of people. Yep. And they don't realize how many blue collar jobs exist on a set. And when I finally got it through to her, she's like, oh, my God, now I see people differently now. And I don't realize, you know, and if, and if people who are fans of the industry can't get that, how many people walking into the industry or just going into film school don't realize that? And then they just get used to treating people badly. And then people get used to being treated badly. And I'll tell you that causes a huge, huge effect that people are unaware of. Because when the time comes around that you want to do the right thing, it's going to be just as hard to do the right thing as when you do the wrong thing. And it's going to hurt even more because you're going to be judged on this precedence that you have to get it perfect. If you want to be right and you want to save the world, the number one thing that like the, the, the doubting you side of Hollywood is going to constantly say to you is, well, oh, well, this is obviously a shit show now because like you did this one thing wrong. And it's like, you, you can't, you can't say that, perfection is what's going to make this industry better. It's really trying to swing that pendulum. So for me, I really got in ahead of myself and I was like, okay, payroll company. Okay. This, we need these things. And then like four weeks into it, it's like certain things are crashing down and going, well, we tried ethical. Do we just burn it to the ground and try unethical? And we're like, no, <laughs> it's going to hurt, but we're going to pay this 25.15% payroll tax and figure out how to go get more shareholders and figure out how to double down on doing the right thing about how hard it feels, you know? And then you, you go through a lot of headaches going, am I doing the right thing? Because there'll be even people who are so used to being treated bad that they'll come around and go, oh, well, you're, you're just as broken as the previous regime and I don't believe you. And, you know, and you just, you have to take it on the chin. And sometimes you even just have to turn that and go, you're right. You're totally right. And then you just, you keep walking on and you go, can I fix this from my perspective? Am I trying to fix this because they're broken? Or am I trying to fix this because I feel guilty now because I couldn't help that person in the way that they felt it? So there's, there's a lot of personal psychology that I think that has to be covered when you want to be in charge of that many people, when you want to show run when you want to be a studio exec, when you just want to own an IP, even you just want to shoot one movie, you still need to be aware of that. The entire ecosystem, you know, of all the individuals who are, who are contributing, who are part of it, who matter, 
Yeah, it's true. Even within my own family, looking at who just thought, oh, well, Hollywood is all glamorous for everybody. You know, and the strike happens. My mom's like, wow, who are the who, who's who are the Teamsters? Who's I who's I What's this? What's happening? You know, with all these other guilds that are coming together. And um, I'm hoping that it's bringing more awareness around to the blue collar side of what goes into creating anything in this industry. There's so much. Yeah, there's so much. Well, what um, would you like our listeners to know about your vision, about Moku Moku, anything um, that you'd like to share? Uh, well, vision-wise, bear with us. We are under construction and evolving every day, but peep in on us and tell us what you think. I love criticism. I think that's where, like, I, I still appreciate the acting side of the industry because that's that's where you have to be the most critical is is of yourself. Uh, like, I, I I throw that out to my my old uh, high school theater teachers, Mr. Yendez, Mrs. Byler, and Mr. Leonard, because if it wasn't for them being tough on me to teach me how to be constructively tough on myself without being hard on myself, because you can be tough on yourself without being hard on yourself. And I think that if you always think critically of what you're about to get into, then that's that's the most important part. You know, it's, it's hard to think about that many chess pieces, but if you wanna be a showrunner, you have to be fifth dimensional. You know, I, I, really, I really separate the industry on three planes. You have your talent, they live on a three dimensional plane of the here and now. And then you have your midline to approaching the above the line talent who are producing on a fourth dimensional level. And then you have at the top, you're living in a world where you've spent so much of your life in the past to make the present happen, but you're making deals, promises, and decisions that are five, 10, 15, 25 years ahead. You know, and if you want to make a studio level change, like being able to figure out how many phases in a Marvel universe, you have to be prepared to put your headspace into building a time machine. So I just want people to know it's a brain melting process and bear with us. But I think we're, we're almost ready to say how much, how much bigger and out there we're about to be, especially with these distribution conversations that we're having. So for those of you out there that are like, how do I make this one day? Is it going to hurt? Yes, it's going to hurt, but stick through the pain and just be critical of yourself as I am of myself now. And if I'm not as critical of myself in 20 years as I am of now, somebody slap me. <laughs> <laughs> so where can our listeners find you on uh, socials? Uh, you can find me at Kavika Hulk. That's K-A-W-I-K-A-H-O-K-E, just about anywhere you find. I, like Tigger, am the only one. And uh, you can find me at kavikahoke.com on Instagram, on YouTube, on the Facebook. I don't do TikTok. I just buy ads on it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you can find Moku Moku at 808mokumoku.com uh, or at 808mokumoku on Instagram, Facebook. And like I said, only buying ads on TikTok. So... <laughs> Right on, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed every minute. Thank you. It's a blast and it's been such a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. <laughs>